morning, church. We're going to have to have a talk with first service. We had to set up like three rows of chairs in the back because we were so crowded. And so they, you first service, you just start coming to second service. There's room at second service. But uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to do a special uh, uh, Palm Sunday study uh, this, this morning. If you would, open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to look at the first 11 verses there. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and these guys will uh, bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Mark 11, 1 through 11 this morning, I shared first service. It's always a challenge when to share a, a Palm Sunday message because the message is the same. But it's good to bring back to remembrance these things that we have studied. And so uh, uh, it's a great, great uh, opportunity this morning and I'm, I'm excited to, to share from God's Word today. So uh, Mark uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. We read, Now when they drew near Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and said, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of your father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The title of my message this morning is Palm Sunday and the Triumphal Exits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together in this place, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for instructing us of your word, giving us not only information but application in our lives that would change us. And draw us closer into, into our relationship with you, Lord. And helping us to know you better as we live in the days in which we do, Lord. We desire that. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you. That aren't born again this morning. Lord, would you especially touch their heart and their life. That they would see their need for you and come to faith in you this morning. Thank you for our time together. Lord, we commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've always loved Palm Sunday as a kid because that was the day that we were handed these little palm branches, you know, on our way out the door at church. Now, I came from a traditional background and the kids stayed in church during, during the, the, the Mass, Catholicism. And, and uh, so we'd get that palm you know, on the way out and we'd get in the car and immediately my brother and I would start sword fighting with it and poking each other's you know, getting their ears and tickle their ears with it. And it makes sense to me now why they handed to us kids on the way out of church, not on the way in church. <laughs> Reminds me of the only funny story I know concerning Palm Sunday. You've probably heard it all before because I've used it before, but yeah, we'll go again. A little boy, he was sick on Palm Sunday and he stayed home from church with his mother. His father returned home with that palm branch in hand. The little boy was curious and asked, why do you have that palm branch, Dad? 
Dad said, well, you see, son, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches to honor him, so we got palm branches today. The little boy replied, ah, shucks, the one Sunday I miss is the Sunday that Jesus shows up. <laughs> Thanks for laughing. Uh, so, <laughs> it's the only one I know, I, so I've shared it every year. But anyway, today we do celebrate Palm Sunday, or better known as the Triumphal Entry. I like to call it the triumphal exit because that's what Jesus was about to do. Uh, he was about to, to exit the grave after they put him to death. The triumphal entry or the Palm Sunday, it's found in all four Gospels, Matthew 21, Luke 19, John 12 and here in Mark 11. I find it interesting that we don't have feeding the 5,000 Friday, you know, or, or uh, water turned into wine Wednesday. I would imagine people would really show up for an event like that. Though they were miraculous days in the life of Jesus and the people, it pales in comparison to what Jesus was about to do. Understand what happened some 2,000 years ago, uh, this upcoming week, changed everything. Changed all of history, all of creation. It changed the very present and eternal destiny of mankind. When our Lord Jesus gave his life as a ransom and, and as a sacrificial love offering for all of us, it radically transformed everything. Jesus made a way through his death and resurrection for every person born on earth to, re, to be reborn from above and filled with his Holy Spirit. He made a way for us to experience human life in a whole new way, cleansed and purified by the Holy Spirit. Today we can live a life and filled with the Holy Spirit, a life that can be lived out through that same Holy Spirit. This was the week that Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, King David, Isaiah, Daniel, all the prophets looked forward to, to in great anticipation. This is a week that all of heaven had been looking forward to since the fall of man. The week that Jesus would begin his final steps of his mission here on earth. And which brings us, of course, back to this day, this Sunday, this Palm Sunday. It's the anniversary of the day that Jesus rode into to the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey as scores of followers surrounded him with praise and prophecies and, and prayers and palm branches. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. Number one, we're going to see Jesus leads. Number two, Jesus fulfills. And number three, Jesus delivers. Point number one, Jesus leads. Look at verses one through four one more time. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. Now this is interesting. Jesus says, okay, I need a couple of you disciples. I want to use you for a task. I want you to go into this city where nobody knows you. I want you to untie this colt, or rightly translated, the young donkey. Bring this donkey to me, and if anyone asks you about this, just say, the Lord needs it. And that's really putting these, these disciples to the test. It's putting them in this place of being obedient, whether they understand the big picture or not. I mean, think about what Jesus was asking these disciples to do, to walk in faith, to walk in obedience. First, they were to believe that that a donkey would be right where Jesus said. Secondly, they were to go right up to this unbroken donkey, never ridden before donkey, and, and loose it and lead it back to Jesus. And thirdly, they were to say nothing unless challenged by the owners or anyone else, and they were to only repeat a phrase, not really explaining themselves. 
It would be like me saying, okay, I need a few guys here to go down to the to, to Republic. And, and there's a guy, and he's in his garage, he has a brand new Harley Davidson. Never been ridden before at all. I want you guys to go in, get the key started up, and bring it to me. And if anyone asks, tell them, Pastor Tom needs it. What do you think? <laughs> I, I don't think it would go over too well. But that's the type of request that the Lord was asking them to do. Now, if I were one of these disciples sent on this mission like that, I think I would be pretty apprehensive about what to expect. Yet they followed the Lord's leading. They go, they go into town. And in fact, someone does ask him, hey, what are you doing? Look at verses 5 and 6. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing, loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. That's it. No complaints. No, hey, get your hands off of my donkey. N- nothing. You know, we've all heard the phrase, where God guides, God provides. And it's absolutely true. Isaiah fifty-eight eleven says this, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. God wants to lead us every step of our journey, and not just with the big decisions that we have to make in life, but with the small ones, the little ones as well. He wants to provide for our every need. That's the job of a father taking care of his children. I don't know if you've heard or not, I'm now a grandpa for my sixth grandchild. Last Monday morning, uh, my daughter gave birth to little Mackenzie Ann, six pounds, one ounce, sweetest little thing, just just. Yeah, praise the Lord. Just just the sweetest little thing. And you just sit there and you're holding her. Oh, God, she's just amazing. Every little feature is just perfect. And you're just holding her. And you know, there's nothing you wouldn't do for her. You know, what do you need, sweetheart? Papa's not going to tell you no. What do you want? You know, got your parents to tell you no, you know. But you hold that little baby. And, and, and you know, I look at my son-in-law, Calvin. Cal, he just holds her and nothing he wouldn't do to protect her and to apply for her needs and, and everything. And that's the same way our Father is. God, our Father, taking care of us as His children. And even, even in these days of, of, of uncertainty, of high inflation and gas prices and grocery prices, God doesn't change. I mean, He's still going to take care of you and I, no matter what's going on. And in the end, He's going to take us safely home to be with Him, where according to First Peter chapter 1, we have an inheritance waiting for us. Why? Because we're part of the family of God. God takes care of His kids. Our responsibility is just simply to trust and obey as He leads us. But I do find it interesting that the Lord told these two disciples, if anyone asks them, just tell them the Lord has need of it. That's an interesting paradox here, that the Lord would have need of anything. Yet we read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, that the Lord needed to borrow a boat to sit in to preach. That He needed five loaves and two fish to feed the crowd. We also know that he needed a borrowed tomb to be buried in so he could rise. Understand, our Lord chose to place himself where he has need. Paul puts it this way, that he was rich has become poor for our sakes. Why did the Lord choose to place himself in a place of need? So we could partner with him to meet that need. Whether it's fishing for men, Peter, can I you know, borrow your boat or it's feeding the multitude? Some, can I use your food? God wants to partner with us. And right now, the Lord wants to partner with you and I in in seeking how we can meet one another's needs and be the hand and arms of God in ministering to one another. Perhaps, you know, 
you know, coming together and, and, and praying for one another. I think of the, the, the folks in Ukraine and what's going on there and, and the Christians there and the churches there and, and maybe even more than praying, what, what can we do to help out, you know, and, and, and partnering with God to, to help and be God's arms and hands there. Certainly uh, partnering in prayer. Yeah, the Lord needs us to, to speak up and, and out against anti-God social policies and, and bills and laws and, and things that are going wrong in, the, in our school systems and, and all of that. But more than anything, the Lord needs us to, to be sharing the gospel like never before. Because the days are so evil and His return is so near. But understand, the Lord doesn't need anything. He needs us about as much as I needed my kids to help me paint our house when they were three or four years old. You know, Dad, I want to help. I really need you to get this done. Do you, I want you to do that wall. And that. No, I don't need you. But here's a little bench over here. Why don't you paint this little bench and, and, and show Daddy when you're done? Same type of thing, you know. Lord could have easily had a donkey, a colt, just come walking up where he was at. You know, just right there, then and there. But he, choose, he chose to use the two disciples. Listen, God wants to use you and I to reach the lost. So the two disciples, they go into town, they get the donkey, they bring it back to Jesus. And, and at this point, I'm not sure if the disciples really understood the significance of it quite yet. Follow me. Jesus didn't say, I want you to go into this town, bring a donkey back to me, because I am going to get on this donkey. It's never been ridden before. I'm going to get on the donkey. I'm going to come into Jerusalem. I'm going to show myself as the Messiah. And the people, they're going to wave palm branches. They're going to put their, their coats down on the ground. They're going to cry, Hosanna. This is what I'm going to do. So that's why I want you to go get the donkey. None of that. All he said was, go get the donkey, this young colt, and bring it back to me. So they trusted him, even obeyed him without understanding the big picture. How often do we, uh, we are, put, are we put in the same situation where God calls us to take a step of faith and we say, Lord, I don't know. How is this going to work out exactly? What's going to happen here? So if I do that, what's going to be the next step? And sometimes we go, I don't know. And we drag our feet in disobedience. And the Lord says, just, just trust me, will you? I'll lead you. I have a plan. It's all worked out. But if I show it to you now from start to finish, it will freak you out. You'll never believe it. So just take one step at a time. You know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Perhaps you've heard a little poem called Footprints in the Sand. It talks about how our life is like walking in the sand with the Lord, and there's two set of footprints. It's, it's kind of hokey, but it's, it's old. But then, you know, you know, there's some stressful parts in our life, and there's only one set of footprints, and, and the, the person asks, well, Why, Lord, did you leave me? During that hard time in my life, there's only one set of footprints and the Lord says, I didn't leave you, my child. I was carrying you. Well, someone adapted the poem and I think it really fits for us this morning to, and letting the Lord lead us and, and, and yielding to His leading uh, uh, to get the, even if we don't understand the big picture. It goes like this. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen. The footprints of my precious Lord. But mine were not along the shore. But then some stranger prints appeared. And they asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed, you would not grow the walk of faith you would not know. You got so tired, you got fed up, and now you sat on your butt. 
Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. (laughs) When I think about that, you know, we can be, you know, stubborn as donkeys, refusing to to move. No, I'm just setting my ways. I'm not going to do it. I don't know if you've ever, you know, participated in the donkey basketball game. You know, and you got the two teams. And, and those donkeys, when they don't want to move, they're not going to move. doesn't matter what you do. Interesting fact about donkeys. Donkeys love to roll in the dirt. They love to do that more than anything else. So when you pat them on the back, you see all the dust fly off of them. Isn't that a perfect picture of all of us before coming to Christ? Stubborn, strong-willed people who like to roll around in the dirt of sin. Another interesting fact about donkeys according to Exodus 13.13, that before a donkey could be released and used by their master, they had to be redeemed. Now, this all had to do with the Jews leaving Egypt and sparing the firstborn son. But listen to Exodus 13, verse 13. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and all the firstborn of men among your sons you shall redeem. So whenever there was a donkey that was born, a lamb had to die so the donkey could live. Not so good for the lamb, but... But see, if there were no sacrifice, then the donkey would have to be put to death. Its neck would be broken. Now, what's interesting to me about that is in the very same verse in Exodus 13, 13, it speaks of the firstborn of man being redeemed. So again, what a great picture of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sent to die for the dumb donkeys of us, the strong-willed donkeys, the stubborn as mule donkeys. Jesus became the Lamb of God, suffered and died to redeem each one of us, to deliver us from the power of of death and sin. Finally, one last detail about donkeys before we move on. During the time of Christ, in that culture, to ride a donkey was the symbol of a conquering hero. So for Jesus to come into Jerusalem on a donkey, it was a definite attention getter. I mean, not only the, the, the citizens of Rome, you know, the, the, the Romans, they would look at it, even the guards and go, what is he doing? Because, you know, they would, from their their perspective, he's acting as though he's some returning hero or something. But the Jews took it a step further and thought not only is that he's our hero, but he's our Messiah who's going to come into town and he's going to overthrow the Roman oppression we are under. That was their hope. That's what they were expecting. That's not what Jesus was coming to do. Now this leads us to our second point. Number two, Jesus fulfills. Look at verse 7 and 8. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. John's Gospel, we read of them waving the palm branches down in front of them. Now, why would they wave these palm branches? Well, earlier in their national history, the Jews have waved palm branches when the Maccabees overthrew the Syrian oppression. It was during the reign of this bloodthirsty Syrian king named Antiochus Epiphanes, a man so blasphemous, he slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies and made the priest there drink its blood. Epiphanes bludgeoned the Jews into submission. But after several years of this, however, a man named Judas Maccabees, whose name meant hammer, uh, along with his brothers, they brought the hammer down on Antiochus Epiphanes and launched a guerrilla warfare against him. Maccabee and his band of renegades miraculously overcame the Syrian army, drove Epiphanes from Jerusalem, and as a result, the people spontaneously celebrated by waving palm branches as they paraded down the street. So from that time on, the, the, uh, on the back of the Jewish coins, he picked up a palm branch as a symbol of d- deliverance from oppression, a symbol of, of victory. 
The, the palm branch was a, a patriotic symbol of freedom. Today it would be like waving our American flag or a little stuffed bald eagle, you know, a symbol of freedom. Why were they doing this? Well, again, they wanted another Maccabean revolt to come in and deliver them. They wanted to crown Jesus as king. But Jesus had other plans. He came to fulfill what he was called to fulfill. Let me give you just a few examples of what Jesus fulfilled. First is Jesus fulfilled Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 in the Old Testament. Zechariah 9, 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Matthew's Gospel. Of the same event, we read, All this was done that might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. You have a, a prophecy, you have a fulfillment. Interesting in this prophecy, Matthew says, tell the daughter of Zion in verse 5, but the prophecy in Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Also note that Matthew leaves out he is just in having salvation. Matthew only quoted a part of verse 9. Why did he leave out certain things and include others? Well, Matthew was obviously quoting, it has to do with the first coming of Christ. Zechariah has to do with the second coming of Christ. Secondly, Jesus fulfills Genesis 49 verse 10. Says Jacob prophecies to his son Judah concerning the Messiah. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Who's this talking about? It's talking about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, offering himself as the Messiah, the King, the Savior. And we read here that he washed his garments in wine. What kind of wine? Well, it's his blood, his, his own blood that was shed. Now, when Christ comes a second time, his garments are going to be red as well. But the question is asked, how? Isaiah 63, 2 tells us, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? That blood will be the blood of his enemies as Christ returns to this earth in judgment. And thirdly, this event is prophesied that Jesus fulfilled found in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel fulfilled Daniel 9, 24 through 26. Let me read that to you. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the princess shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, the streets shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be determined with the flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Absolutely fulfilled to the T. Now we know the fact that on March 14, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes gave the decree to Nehemiah to restore and build Jerusalem. Now at that point, the Jews could have started their stopwatch. They could have said, okay, there'll be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now that's a description of years. The word weeks there in Hebrew is just sevens. The translated, translators translated weeks because of seven days in a week. But what he's saying is 77s are determined for your people and for your holy city. And then verse 25, he says there should be seven-year periods and 62 seven-year periods before the Messiah would come. So add that up. 
from the time King Artaxerxes made the decree to restore and build Jerusalem, 483 years later, Jesus would come into Jerusalem. And 483 years later, to the day, according to the lunar calendar, Jesus fulfilled that prophecy coming in on Palm Sunday. Interesting, Daniel also prophesied that what would happen at the end of those 483 years. He said Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. Is that not what happened? Jesus was, was crucified, not for himself, but for the sins of the world. So we have 69 weeks. There's one seven-year period yet to be fulfilled. And we know that to be the great tribulation period where God will pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world for the last seven years upon this earth. That will be the completion of the 70 weeks of Daniel. But to see for Jesus to fulfill just three of those prophecies that I mentioned, the odds are astronomical. And yet Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies concerning his first coming. Let me give you a few more examples. I'll keep it brief. But Jesus' first coming that he fulfilled to the T. Maybe jot down the verses, look them up later. The prophecy and the fulfillment. The prophecy, Genesis 3.15, Messiah would bruise Satan's head. The fulfillment, Hebrews 2.14, Jesus destroyed the devil. The prophecy, Genesis 49.10, Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Luke 3.23-33, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. The prophecy, Isaiah 9.6, Messiah would be God himself. The fulfillment, Matthew 1.23, Jesus was God with us. Prophecy, Matthew 5, 2, Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The fulfillment, Matthew 2, 1, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The prophecy, Isaiah 7, 14, Messiah would be born of a virgin. The fulfillment, Matthew 1, 18, Jesus was born of a virgin. All these and more, Jesus fulfilled at his first coming. And let me tell you, he will fulfill hundreds more at his second coming. You see, the thing is, the more I'm into God's Word and reading God's Word and going through it, I'm amazed at the accuracy and the reliability of it. It's absolutely astonishing. That's why Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other, for I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. You know, when someone says to me, well, my opinion about God and my opinion about Jesus is this. I want to say, stop. I don't care what your opinion is about God or Jesus. What does the Bible say? Why? Because God's word is truth. God says his word is truth. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes forth my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. See, when it comes to to your opinion about God, and for that matter, my opinion about God, it doesn't mean anything. It's a word of God that reveals to to us and reveals Jesus to us, God to us, with pinpoint accuracy, and that's definitely more reliable than anybody's opinion. Reveals what's right and what's wrong, what's sin and what's not. When When the world says, listen, you know, you need to be pro choice and, 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 you know, abortion is okay. I don't care what you think. The Bible says it's sin. Thou shalt not murder, Exodus 20:13. Well, you know, you just need to accept homosexuality. It's okay. You, you, you need to be tolerant. No homosexual will enter the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says. That's what God's Word says. Well, I think, uh, you know, I want to choose my own gender. No, in the beginning God created male and female, Mark 10, 6. doesn't matter what you think. God's Word calls it sin. 
I, I think, well, divorce is okay. Uh, it doesn't matter what you think. The Bible says that God hates divorce, Malachi 2.16. Don't look to the world and let them dictate to you what is right and what is wrong. Look to God's Word. He's a final authority and He declares the end from the beginning. And when it comes to heaven and getting there and spending eternity with God, I don't care how you think you're going to get there. <laughs> Jesus said, He's the only way to the Father. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. My point here is this. Jesus will fulfill every last prophecy spoken of by Him. You have His Word on it. Which leads to our third point. Number one, Jesus leads. Number two, Jesus fulfills. Number three, Jesus delivers. Look now at verses 8 through 11. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, we know that the word Hosanna literally means save now. Probably the best translation of this is they were crying out, help us, we're tired of living under the control of the, uh, the Roman Empire. I don't think it was so much of a, a personal prayer of saying, save me. It was kind of a corporate cry of the nation, help us in our time of distress. The king is here to overthrow the Roman oppression. Now understand, Jesus had never done anything like this before. Usually he withdrew himself from the crowds when they clamored for him. Once he even hid himself from the crowd when they wanted to make him king. But now he deliberately arranges this whole event to enter into Jerusalem and in a way that would actually draw attention to himself. Now why is that? Well, because Jesus all along has been saying, my hour is not yet come, my hour is not yet come. But now his hour had come. And he not only fulfills Zechariah 9.9, but Malachi 3.1, where we read, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And on this day, the Lord would leave no doubt at all that he came as the Messiah. Jesus knew he was a wanted man, yet he chose to publicize his arrival. In fact, the religious authorities had commanded anyone aware of his location, according to John's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 57, they were to reveal his location to them. But to see, Jesus wasn't coming forth publicly as a helpless victim, unaware of what lies ahead. He came forth as a, a powerful victor, marching bravely into battle. And we read in verse 9, the masses of the people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who, who comes in the name of the Lord. There's great joy that they had. I don't, I don't want you to miss this. They were worshiping the king. Now, a side note I want to share about worship. My son Joey just shared this last Wednesday, how there, there are hindrances, hindrances in coming in and, and worshiping the Lord at times. And he mentioned the cares and the concerns of the day, the morning, the kids, the wife, and certainly with, with three-year-old twins, I understand where he's coming from. You've got a lot going on in your mind. And it can be really distracting for us to actually come in and, and take a breath and really just worship the Lord. You know, sometimes when we come in and we're not really focused and, and I think we're just kind of going through the motions. But his point was good. It was right. Yes, worship should cost us something. To say no to those distracting thoughts and, and just focusing on calming your hearts and focusing on who it is that we are worshiping. 
I love here that we see the people praising Jesus with, with whatever they had. Coats, palm branches, even themselves just bowing down in worship. But Jesus doesn't need great things to give him honor. You may say, well, I don't really have that, that good of a voice. Don't matter. Praise him anyways. These disciples were praising the Lord. See, it's Spurgeon once said, I suppose those disciples had their trials as we have ours. There might have been a sick wife at home or a child withering with, with disease, yet they all praised him. Like that. No matter what was going on, they knew the importance of praising him. Now, they praised the Lord in three ways, through sacrifice, through remembrance, and anticipation. First, they praised the Lord through sacrifice. To give up their garments, placing them on the ground, verse 8, meant that they, something in that culture. Many of them only had one set of clothes. To lay that apart, aside, and clothing, to let the man riding a donkey go over them was really laying something down. Secondly, they praised the Lord through remembrance. In Luke's account, chapter 19, verse 37, we read that, and as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. They're praising Him because they remember all the things that He did. So they're about to see the mightiest thing ever done on the cross. And then thirdly, they praised the Lord in anticipation. Yeah, they believed that Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman government, set up His kingdom then and there. So they're praising God for Jesus setting up His kingdom. They're crying, Hosanna, save now. But my question is, are we doing the same thing? Are we praising God? Are we worshiping Him through sacrifice of giving? Maybe helping out in Sunday school ministry, sacrificing our time to visit a sick friend, sacrificing our finances, our tithes, our offerings to the Lord. Do we praise the Lord in remembrance of what He's done for us? That all of our sins have been paid for, forgiven there upon the cross. Do we praise the Lord in anticipation of His soon return? to know that, that he's going to be taking us home to be with him. I find it interesting that over in Luke's Gospel, we're told that the Pharisees demanded that Jesus rebuke his followers for crying out, Hosanna, to which Jesus re- responded, if they stopped worshiping, the rock themselves would cry out. You know, there's just a part of me that wish they just would have stopped for a moment because we would have had the first rock concert in human history. I, I mean, it would have been amazing. Well, listen, there's an important point for us here. How we need to be those that cry out to the Lord. Be expressive in our worship and in our prayers. We're told to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what does that mean? It means completeness. It means to live for the Lord to the fullest we can. Not to be afraid to stand and lift your hands in prayers and crying out to the Lord and sing praises to Him. To give a reason for the rocks not to cry out. But again, this brings us back to our third point, Jesus delivers. So we see there was great joy as people were worshiping the king. But we also know that there was great sadness that filled this day. Because soon those same cries of Hosanna, uh, rather the same cries of Hosanna came from ignorance of what Jesus came to do. They were ignorant of God's word. Again, they wanted Jesus on their own terms. They wanted to deliver who would conform to their plans instead of his. They wanted Jesus to destroy the Roman oppression but leave untouched their way of life, their cherished sins, their, their superficial religion they had. You know, not much has changed in 2,000 years. There's many that love to come out and celebrate Palm Sunday, that yet they neglect the Lord the rest of the year. I heard someone call them palm tree Christians. I like that. They're palm tree Christians. Or they celebrate, you know, His birth and arrival of Christmas, but live as though it never came. They're Christmas Christians, you know. Or you got the, the celebration of resurrection at Easter, but they live as though he were dead. Easter Christians. 
You know, many, yes, good. Many will sing praises of Jesus when we think He will give us wealth and health and success and happiness. But oh, how those praises stop when obedience and commitment is required. Or when a little difficulty, a little trial, a little sickness, a little illness comes around. We want the appearance of being religious as long as it doesn't require anything from me. That's what these people were doing. They wanted to see Jesus, but they wanted Him on their own terms. Lord, we want You to be our conquering King. They wanted a military Messiah who would accomplish their agenda, but Jesus was coming as a suffering Savior to accomplish His Father's agenda, God's agenda. Jesus' first coming wasn't to take the crown, but to wear the crown of thorns. He didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin and death. He didn't come to make war with Rome. He came to make peace between God and man. They misunderstood His mission. I like the quote from Leonard Ravenhill. He said, Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad men good. He came into the world to make dead men live. That's what was writing in Jerusalem was all about this Palm Sunday. Jesus would deliver mankind through His death and resurrection. Finally, it's interesting in Matthew's Gospel, after this parade was all over, we read in Matthew 21, 10 and 11, and when He had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Do you see, do you hear what they thought of Jesus? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Not the Son of God come down from heaven to redeem mankind. No, they totally missed who He was and what He came to do. All wrapped up in themselves, all wrapped in their own needs, their own situations. Again, the people are saying, we want to deliver. We just don't want it to require anything of us. We want something easier, something more comfortable. We want a God who will let us do whatever we want. We want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to live in both worlds. Man, are we not seeing that today? You know, people, oh, Lord, deliver us. Lord, help us. And once He does, ah, oh, thanks, God. I'll see you around next emergency. That's making God in our image. God that we want only when we need something. It was Voltaire who once said, God made man in His image and man returned to the favor. That's what we want. A God in our image. A God that will conform to our wishes, to our desires. A God that will fulfill our agendas. User-friendly God. Can adapt to our, our chosen lifestyles. We want, want faith, light, religion a la carte. So we go up to the celestial salad bar and take a little bit of this, a little bit of that. God says, no. No. Not, that's not what it's about. But that's what these people were like. They wanted Him on their terms, but Jesus would have nothing to do with it. Listen, folks. One day, I believe, very soon, Jesus is going to come back. And it will be a triumphal return. It will be as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's going to be on, on His terms and He will establish His kingdom. Here, Jesus would make that triumphal exit, but one day, very soon, He's going to make His great return. Are you excited about that? I'm excited about that. Let me get you excited about it and then we'll close, okay? Listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. This is speaking of Jesus' return. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords.
If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what does. This is a description, of course, of Jesus' second coming to earth. He's coming as conquering king. He will establish his kingdom. And by the way, I'm expecting a front row seat. Maybe I should say a, a front row saddle seat because the scripture says in verse 14 that armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who are these armies? Well, the Bible says the Lord comes back with ten thousands of his saints. And we're told in scriptures that when the Lord appears, we're going to be like him. And so therefore, my belief, when Christ comes back, that we're going to return to earth with them on those horses. So if you've never ridden a horse before, you're going to get your chance. <laughs> Revelation 19 speaks of the second coming, but prior to the second coming to this earth, there's this wonderful event the Bible calls a rapture. Now you won't find the word rapture in the Bible unless you have a Latin translation, but it's there. So if I didn't get you excited enough, let me read one more section of Scripture to you that should really get you excited. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we always be with the Lord. The word caught up, Latin word raptures, rapture in English, taken by force, the Lord will take us to be with him. And then it will be the seven-year tribulation period. Then the final battle of Armageddon that will culminate in the visible bodily return of Jesus Christ to this earth on the Mount of Olives as he comes and steps on the Mount of Olives, splits in two, and he comes back to rule and reign with him, uh, well, with him for a thousand years. But Jesus is coming back soon. He's coming for us, and he's going to set up his kingdom. He's going to rule and reign forever. So the question is, as we close, are you ready? If you are, then this should get you really excited. If not, then you need to get ready. Listen, Jesus knew he was coming into that city to pay the ultimate price for our sins. He knew that this led to the cross. He knew that those shouts of Hosanna saved now, that there would soon be shouts of crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Yet that would not stop him from his mission. It wouldn't stop him from his goal to die for your sins, to die for my sins, so we can have that relationship with Him, with our Heavenly Father. And in the same way, God's Word says Jesus is going to return. The Scriptures declare it. The big question as we celebrate Palm Sunday, are you aware? Are you ready? Have you repented of your sin? Have you surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Jesus came to redeem mankind, to forgive you of your sin, to redeem you, to take away your guilt and shame to dwell within you by His Holy Spirit and to take you safely home to heaven in this time. Are you ready for that? Have you given your life to Him? If you've not surrendered your life, please, as soon as the service is over, come up and talk with me. I want to give you a Bible, pray with you, let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Give your life to Him. It's exciting. Jesus is coming soon. Let's prepare the way of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let's pray. Father, thank you just for your love and grace towards us. Thank you for your mercy in our lives, Lord. Thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts. Thank you for the remembrance of this day, Lord. Such a a special, special day. Lord, as we see you moving and working towards the most special day, the day in which you gave your life for us. You paid the price for all of our sins. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you. They're not born again this morning. Lord, that they would not wait another moment to do that. They would make the decision today. 
But Lord, as we go our way as believers, we ask, Lord, that, that we would be open to your leading. That we wouldn't hold back, Lord. That we wouldn't drag our feet. We wouldn't be stubborn. Lord, that we would listen to you. And not have to have the whole big picture, Lord. But trusting, Lord, that you have the big picture. And we just need to take those steps of faith. Lord, we thank you that you will fulfill your word to the T. Lord, that you will protect us. That you will watch over us. That you will guide us as your word declares. We know that, Lord, because you fulfilled already so much of your word. And we thank you, Lord, for our deliverance. You saved us from death and sin and hell, and you've given us heaven. And we praise you for that. And Father, now we pray that you'd give us a special infilling of your Holy Spirit, that as we leave this place today, Lord, so many people this week are going to be thinking about Easter. Lord, help us to get their minds on what it really means, the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be open to your leading and sharing and inviting people to church. For many of them, they'll only come to church one time, Lord. We know that. And, and so, Lord, help us to, to be open to who to talk to, who to invite, who to share. And then finally, Lord, we pray for a great outpouring of your Spirit on Easter next week, Lord, as people give their life to you, to come to faith in you, recognizing what you've done for them. So fill us with your Spirit. Bless us as we go our way today. Thank you for this beautiful day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Still stand.